0: You're listening to the Rubbish Trip podcast, two no waste nomads talk trash with people in Aotearoa, New Zealand. <laughs>
1: Katrina Wolf is the creator of Blue Borage, a business in Auckland through which she supports households, schools, workplaces and communities to develop and sustain on-site edible gardens and to compost their way to beautiful soil. Katrina is a strong believer in ensuring everyone in society has access to healthy, local kai and to the potential to contribute to good quality compost. Blue Borage focuses on equipping people with simple and lasting solutions to gardening and composting on land close to them. In this podcast, we talk with Katrina about why she's so passionate about soil, on how edible gardening and composting contributes to holistic well-being, the benefits of keeping things local and community-focused, and whether modern society can allow us to transition towards a life that is more connected to the land, soil, and food around us. We started off by asking Katrina what it is about gardening and composting that she finds so wonderful and fulfilling.
2: On a sort of superficial, simplistic level, I often look out at my garden and kind of think, you know, it's my pantry, Mm -hmm. and it's my gym, (laughs) and it's my park, it's my flower shop, (laughs) it's my chill-out zone, but then on a deeper level, there's also this There's a spiritual connection to the process of nature through my garden. So it's almost become like a sacred place, like a, not a church or a temple, but it's a really, it's a place of peace, a place of meditation, but it's an active meditation. So it's both functional on a sort of superficial level, but also a very deep level that it's quite challenging to describe. Yeah. And I think, um, I was was pondering this morning and thinking about how when I was raising my kids, when they were toddlers, I was living in Japan and we were in apartments, and then in Canada for a year in a high-rise building downtown Toronto. I had a year in Russia where I lived in three different apartment buildings, but sort of with my ex-husband, we once counted all these places we'd lived with no gardens, no gardening, and... You know, all through those years, I made a conscious effort to walk through public parks or to spend weekends going somewhere to be connected with nature. Mm -hmm. That when we had the opportunity to rent somewhere, it was like, I've got to have a garden. I've got to have my own little patch to get my hands in the soil and actually tend plants year after year after year. So I've been here eight years now and I, I finally have that sense of having really put a lot of myself into the land and cared for it, like a kaitiaki sort of mm-hmm. sense, because it's not mine. One day I will leave, and I, I, every now and then I think I've got to leave it so the next person can use it, whether they're a family with children or someone on their own. Yeah, the, the, the garden is a massive part of where I live.
0: Wow, and so I've all this path that you've gone from talking about being overseas and being in apartment blocks to now being in this space for eight years and developing your own haven but then you're also sort of sharing that with others through blue borage so can you explain like describe in your own words what blue borage is and how that connects into this bigger picture of sharing this with others
2: blue borage is a way of taking my experience with my garden and helping people create their own connection with their own garden, whether that's at home or school or a workplace or community centre. And I think there's a a real potential out there for people, like, for example, where I'm gardening at Green Bay Community House. It was a year ago that I went there needing somewhere to get my hands in the soil because, yeah, I, I didn't want to teach gardening from my home place I needed to keep a little bit of privacy around it and so as I started gardening and showing what I was doing to the people using the community house more and more people sort of noticed the shifts and the changes and and it's become my primary teaching spot
0: Mm.
2: and you know it's been a year so there are things that have self-seeded and they're sprouting up but I want to get these beds clear so I can put new things in that it's like there's this abundance that we can give away, that it's become a a sharing garden, almost like a living nursery. We've come to this point with gardening where I think the mainstream understanding of how you garden is you go to the garden centre and you buy beautiful-looking plants, you fill your trolley, you spend $200, you get home, you plant them, and that's it. But sort of how our grandparents would have gardened or our great-grandparents would have been this abundance that they would have shared with their neighbours. And everyone's abundance is sort of a little bit different that people sharing different things with each other would have enhanced the richness of the entire community with no commercial transaction. So through Blue Borage, Mm. are you striving
0: to support people to go back to those ways of gardening more like our grandparents in a sort of more resilient way in their own homes or in
2: communal spaces both mm-hmm. and also workplaces so the sort of easiest place to start is with a home garden because there's, there's usually one two people making the decisions on what happens in that space that it's quite easy to try a new composting method or to set up a new garden bed to try a few different crops in a community space even the community house sometimes there's a committee to talk to there's permission needed to do certain things and then when you get into public spaces like parks there's often you know three four five six months before you can actually do the thing that you had the idea for workplaces. I think is somewhere that could move quite quickly if people decided they wanted it. Mm. And so that's that's an area that I'm I'm really starting to tease out, and looking initially for the small workplaces with a small team that can make those decisions. Yes, let's do this and and just invest and do the work. So I'm part of a global collective of kitchen garden coaches is a, a woman in Nicole Burke in America who's got a, a platform called Gardenery, and so she's compiling this community of people who can coach edible gardening, kitchen gardening and from very simple container gardening to really complex raised beds and fancy irrigation and whatnot and it's different work to what landscapers do. Because it's, yeah.
0: it's not about de- decoration as such. It's about creating an edible garden.
2: It's very functional and it's tied in with how we eat, how we use the space. And, you know, so many of us grow a few salad greens in pots that, you know, don't, you don't need a qualification to do that. <laughs> well,
0: that mm. kind of leads to the, like, the next question I was thinking. Yeah. From your perspective, can anyone garden? Because I think, you know, in this present time at least... There's almost this thing about, oh, well, gardening's for gardeners. And I'm not a gardener and I don't know. Yeah. If you've not done it before, it's this mystical thing of growing food. I mean, do you believe that anyone can be green from can garden?
2: I believe anybody can. And I think it's unfortunate we do have that perception of you've got green fingers or you don't kind of like you're artistic or you're not, you're musical or you're not. I've got a training in classical music and it saddens me to think there are some people that will never sing with joy because they think they can't sing. Mm. They've deprived themselves of that richness of music. So with gardening, I think one thing you need to have is the willingness to pay attention. Mm. And I think that could be what's missing for some people. You know, it's not something you can plug in, switch on, forget about, and then get the results that you programmed two weeks ago. (laughs) Yeah,
1: Yeah, because, you know, in in our busy lives, there are so many distractions and you know, people might say, oh, I don't have the time and I don't have the appropriate space where I live to have a garden. You know, there's all these extra... Um, there
2: are a lot of people with that limitation in terms of space. And I think particularly in urban spaces, I know here in Auckland, there are so many urban farming initiatives springing up that takes a bit of willpower to, to go out and find something and then talk to the people running that and find your way of fitting that into your timetable. But it's not impossible. And Mm. I know from my time in, I mean, even in Siberia, I had friends with kitchen gardens. We had to get on a bus for 45 minutes and then bring all the produce home at the end of the day. But if people there can garden, Mm. you know, here in New Zealand, I think we're so lucky with our climate that we can grow all year round. But we're also, I guess, lucky with the efficiency of our food system that we don't have to garden. In terms of food security, we can be quite confident that any day of the week we can pop down to a supermarket and we 'll find what we need. But I think where I'm starting to sort of question that is the rest of the world doesn't have that luxury that if there's this tiny country that can grow all year round, if sort of there's normal citizens with normal backyards, if we grow a little bit more for ourselves by ourselves then just maybe perhaps our commercial growers could supply some of the food needs of the world that struggle. So from your perspective,
0: thinking about some people who might be listening to this podcast, Mm -hmm. who may be people in urban areas who live in apartments, who don't have land, and they're listening to you say things like there are ways around it or that 40-minute train ride you had to do in Siberia and thinking, well, why bother, though, especially <laughs> you noted that we do have this whole food on tap thing why bother and are you saying apart from the spiritual and so on benefits that you mentioned at the beginning of your garden that there's also a political element to it or a food sovereignty or resilience element to it or is
2: there another thing Ooh, that- good question I think there's a subtle shift in our economic the way the the food system is set up economically that will start to shift and perhaps already is shifting with the likes of farmer's markets where you can go and you can meet the person who grew the food and know that the money you're spending is going to that person and not a number of middlemen and logistics and admin and transport and all that. Mm. Yeah, it's such a difficult one. Like I'm connected with For the Love of Bees, Quite quite closely as a a collaborator, and I know that their urban market garden, OMG Organic Market Garden on Simon Street, is is like this, right? Just for people who are yeah, yeah. Sorry. Um, (laughs) um, So that's this sort of beautiful example of what's possible. But what their vision is that there is one of those within walking distance, no matter where you live in Mm. the city. That for those inner city dwellers it's not a case of well that would be, that's too hard I can't get up there or it doesn't work for me but well imagine if we shifted our thinking to say we need one of these within walking distance wherever you live Mm. because the other advantage with these urban farms is the composting of food waste and green waste to make the soil to grow the food and to keep all of that local saves rubbish trucks saves the city council having to separate it all and then send it out of town to then bag it up and bring it back to put in garden centers for us to buy you know we could localize our food system but it's going to take customers to buy the food that's grown and at the moment I think there's a lot of restaurants and cafes that are supporting that industry but I suspect it's going to also need apartment dwellers buying vegetable boxes Mm. In a sort of CSA, community-supported agriculture model, where you support the farm financially, knowing that you might not get exactly what you order every week. You're going to get what the farm's growing. Mm. Yeah, right. Gosh, yeah, there's Mm. so
1: many interconnected issues with that, eh? And that whole thing of, yeah, people having what's on tap when they want it in supermarkets, out of season, and maybe people aren't willing to give some of those things up. Um,
2: I know. And we've become so used to just having all that, yeah? Mm. And I think a lot of celebrity chefs and cookbook authors have perhaps led us down that path of cooking what you want, when you want, how you want. Mm. Mm. But there's the counter trend that is the farm to table, the eating seasonal Mm. approach, that I think is starting to resonate with more people. Mm. But maybe that's just the people I hang out with.
0: If we go back to the urban people in the apartment blocks, sorry, they may not be able to garden and they can still get their food on tap (laughs) whenever they want. But the other side of it is no matter where they're getting their food from, they're going to be producing at least some organic waste, so food scraps. Mm -hmm. So if they're not gardening, the next question is, well, what's happening with those food scraps? because it's mm. probably not composting. So we know that in New Zealand about 30% of the average household bin is organic waste, mostly food waste. And so there's been a drive across the country to do something about this to divert this from landfill and a lot of people have been calling for councils to offer municipal collections of food waste and then do sort of municipal large-scale composting of food scraps and green waste across the country so what are your thoughts on that in light of this urban predicament of not having anywhere to put our food scraps and then having that go to landfill and produce methane and leachate and so on?
2: Mm -hmm. It's a complex issue and I think as well as the food scraps are going into Landfill. There's also the food scraps that are being lost down in sinkerators. Oh, God, mm. yes. Yeah, I've, I've been told where it ends up and what it's used for and the whole process, and I do have concerns about the load that places on a growing, like I'm in Auckland, to the growing city and the infrastructure to process all that volume of stuff under the road. Yeah, so bearing in mind that there's more food scraps than just what goes into the landfill through Mm -hmm. rubbish bags, I would love to see a shift in thinking that those food scraps are future soil Mm -hmm. and the more mindfully they're handled, the better quality soil they will make. So if it becomes something that the city councils take responsibility for, then I imagine what we'll end up with is something like the trials that are happening in Papakura in South Auckland, where mm. they have a 15 litre, I think it's 15 litre, it might be 20, but they've, everybody has a bin that goes out once a week. It's picked up, it's taken out to and Enviroford, where it's processed, and then the compost that's made goes to, I think, kiwi fruit orchards, places around North Island, and The compost from there has been available to community gardening projects through EcoMatters. So I've had, I think, three loads of that compost in different gardening projects I've been involved in. And the last load was filled with shards of glass and fruit labels and little bits of what was possibly compostable packaging that maybe it was on the outside of the pile and it hadn't fully decomposed. Um, Little lids from the sushi bottles. No, just bits and pieces in the soil that I was surprised to see. Mm.
0: Well, that's interesting because we've been to a couple of the commercial composts around the country from municipal collections, and we won't say where. And both times, looking at these mounds of quote unquote compost and organic stuff, just of bits of plastic and then you think that breaks down over time and it, even if it's not visible but it is visible but even if it weren't it's still there contaminating the soils so personally we wouldn't buy that compost back and put it on our if we had land personally and, and that's yeah. not, it's not a loop anymore is it if you've got nowhere to put this soil it's sort of not really a circular approach well
2: there's there's always somebody who will take it and grow food and then the food that we buy in supermarkets how do we know what it's grown in yeah
0: mm.
2: yeah that's right there's a high chance we are consuming produce grown in that soil yeah yeah so coming back to you know that's that's the outcome i see if cities take on the responsibility for this food mm. waste collection which is highly likely because we all know it has to happen one way or another the alternative and it's something that resonates with a lot of, oh, I've been following a guy, Jeremy Rifkin on the third industrial revolution and how we need to very rapidly step into this sharing mentality rather than top down progress that needs to be lateral and how we could just make this shift so quickly with the right mindset and two platforms online that would help this with composting share waste and make soil. Mm. Uh, So I'm a compost host on both. Mm -hmm. And here in New Zealand, share waste has been officially supported by the compost collective, which I think is funded by Auckland council. And so when you Google share waste, you get taken to the compost collective, which shows you the New Zealand map of who's a host and you can, for an apartment dweller, you can create an account as a donor and find someone to drop your scraps off to. And the thing I like about this model is that it sets up a line of communication between two individuals with no third party, no financial transaction. And so when I've had donors connect uh, contact me to ask about dropping stuff off, we then have a conversation that you know I don't want the compostable packaging, I don't want meat, I actually don't want anyone's Bokashi. but there are are a few things that I will take so I think downtown there are or in any city there are enough people with space for a compost bin or two that there is there is a way to absorb a lot of those food scraps mm-hmm. um, the other platform is make soil and it's a little different to share waste just when you they hear the two names side by side make soil is about making something that's used to grow so it's a and really focusing on the end product that we're making and it's it's built in that that shift of it's not waste it's a resource and we want to use the resource to do something good Mm. and the guy behind makes oil he's american it's called josh whitten he's a edmund hillary fellow so there's a fellowship Mm. program so he's connected with new zealand through that and uh, he talks about artisanal soil and how You know, when you buy a cup of coffee, if you go to McDonald's, you get one for, I don't know if it's a dollar or a dollar fifty, but then if you go to a cafe and you spend six dollars on a coffee, the two coffees are quite different. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Both coffee. But he, he said one is the more expensive one's artisanal coffee. It's probably made by a barista who's trained and knows how to do an exquisite job. They're using beautiful coffee beans and everything's just impeccable. And he said, We can do that with soil. We can make artisanal soil Mm. and create the market for a top quality product and and so that's what I'm striving for is to make top quality compost and to teach people how to make the best quality compost they can make.
1: That's so so interesting. It's interesting because I've not really thought about creating compost to a degree of quality that you can grade it or scale it or something like that. And I find a lot of conversations when people talk about composting and, quotes, getting rid of food scraps. It's just like just a way to, yeah. people are concerned about the food scraps going to landfill and all the problems there. Mm. They just want a way to get rid of it. And Mm. turn it back into soil and there's no conversation about, well, yeah, what is the end product? What are we turning it into and what are we using that end product for?
2: That's where being a biodynamic practitioner, it comes back to this sort of developing a keen sensitivity to the soil and using companion plants and cow manure and seaweed and refining the blend so that, you know, there's often points where I would say, I don't want any more food scraps because it's not going to help me make that beautiful soil mm. that I'm trying to make. But I, I would like to get a whole pile of grass clippings because I've, I've lost my lawn. And my accountant wants me to get hold of a cow so that I have access to top quality cow manure. Right. Because again, the animal manure we use other animals well treated living happy lives.
0: Mm. You were talking about how make soil is similar to share waste in that it's linking people up who've got food scraps and so on with compost. Mm but then they also have this side that's sort of about democratizing access to compost bins in the first place.
2: Yes, yeah. So one of the things, Josh Whitten, who's the guy behind Make Soil, he had, I think he calls it like a spiritual awakening. It's like the the potential of transformation through compost. Mm. He was just mesmerized by this. And so his aim is to make that experience accessible to anyone Mm. and his feeling is that part of making that really pleasurable for people is making sure the compost bin itself is aesthetically pleasing to look at. No. So, you know, rather than these ugly black plastic bins that we all seem to end up yeah. with, yeah. that if if you had something that was made with love by a carpenter and the detail was beautiful and it was rodent proof, so you could open it and know that you weren't going to be greeted by someone you didn't really want to see, <laughs> then his... I mean, the way I've sort of interpreted what he's saying is actually bringing compost bins from the back corner of the garden and putting them on the front yard as a statement of attractive garden furniture and so I have yet to make one of his soil maker bins I'm not very good with DIY stuff so I'm looking for a carpenter to give me a hand with that but from the photos it looks like they're easy to open they're easy to add the food scraps they're easy to turn they're easy to take the soil out and they're just gorgeous and so his call at the moment is for carpenters woodworkers hobbyists all over the world to start making these and selling them and to create a livelihood for people out of that Uh, so the pattern's available online for free it's makesoil.org and it's the soil maker box excellent
0: going back to that thing of the quality of the compost and then what we're using it for and also moving away from this idea of trying to get rid of waste and more protect a resource. What are your views on compostable plastic packaging? So things like PLA, coffee cups, polylactic acid, sorry, or even home compostable plastic packaging?
2: I haven't done a lot of research on it, and I don't want to. Every now and then I put something in just as an experiment, like the proper crisps. I'm, I'm curious to see how long it takes one of those bags to fully break down. I know I've just joined the Urban Farmers Alliance and so there's a number of community gardens and urban farms that are composting on a large scale and they're dealing with the compostable packaging. And it's a big topic because it it does create an additional challenge of how to get rid of it and get rid of it completely. Something I remember reading about how the products are made, a lot of them are plant-based, right? Right. So say if something's based on corn, who could be eating that corn if it wasn't right. being used for packaging? You know, I just I worry about the, the misuse of the primary resource. And the land as yes. well. Yes, yeah.
0: You can analyse the science to the nth degree, I suppose, but for us it's also partly a gut instinct thing. That yes. In the first place, why do we have a coffee cups? Why do we have to have more single-use products? Yes. And also feel like it's a bit of a distraction from the purpose of composting.
2: Yes, yes, mm, totally. And I think <laughs> packaging is becoming more and more a topic of conversation. You know, from the, the old reusable coffee cup, it's, I don't know, I, I certainly expect to be able to buy a lot of products without the packaging. Yeah. And... So that's what I try and offer my customers with the seed raising mix. When I started growing seedlings and teaching people how to grow from seed, I I was just not going to buy my seed raising mix in a plastic bag. And at the time, I couldn't afford to get it by the trailer, you know, a full cubic meter at a time. So I, I Googled all the recipes and I started making my own and experimenting. And I've come up with a recipe I'm quite happy with, but I'll keep on experimenting to refine it so there's a sort of 2019 version and then the 2020 version and
0: mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> yeah so when i teach i have all those components and the soil itself and buckets that people can purchase by the scoop by the liter and when i've bought stuff at bunnings might 10 king's plant barn garden centers i often ask if they would consider stocking that sort of product in that way and none of them are interested mm.
0: interesting why do you think they're not interested
2: um It would be too difficult. You know, how do you put a barcode on it? Do you weigh it at the checkout? It would just be such a complete mindset change that it's it's almost like it has to be regulated before they'd go there. Mm. Because the system works for them as it is at the moment. And for the commercial producers, I think putting things into 40-litre bags also works for them. Right that it's once we get away with that sort of if we removed all plastic packaging what would they do instead i don't know
1: <laughs> sometimes it feels like why does it have to be so complicated to put a price on a bucket and it's a 10 liter bucket and the 10 litre size is already you know the price of it is worked out and so you just pay for that mm-hmm. but surely they could set up systems that would
2: uh, uh, yeah you would think so yeah you know um landscape garden supply stores are doing it and have done it forever Yeah. except they sell by the trailer load you, you yeah. sort of have to i mean they will sell the one i shop at they will supply people with their own bag and without a tow bar they're just buying to take home in their car But on an even smaller level, it would be, you know, if you only wanted to go in and spend $5, Mm. it might be awkward. I don't know. I think in terms of composting standards and compliance, there might be a little bit of nervousness around the health and safety aspects. Right, yeah. The the funny thing is that when you put compost in a plastic bag and you seal it, the gases that come out when you open that bag are the most hazardous part of the process. Mm that yeah, so yeah. to sell it free flow would probably be safer. I don't know. That's just a thought. So
0: if you're thinking about resilience and all that kind of stuff and also reducing waste... From a zero waste perspective, really to have a less wasteful approach to gardening, one would want to reduce the amount that one goes to a garden centre and be able to do more of this stuff from scratch. So having your own compost, having your own seed raising mix, growing your own seedlings so you don't have to get all the little trays and even saving your seeds.
2: Yes, definitely. I gave a talk to the Auckland Seed Savers last month and put to them this picture of how our public parks are preserved to, or they're maintained to look beautiful all year round, always in flower. Mm. And as soon as the flowers start to fade, start to die, start to form seeds, they're taken out. So as non-gardening people enjoying those parks, they don't actually see the full life cycle of the flowers. And so I said to the seed saver group, imagine if we could encourage parks and gardens and public places to have little signs on just a few plants with, you know, saving seeds to act as a tool to teach people what those seeds actually look like. And so it becomes more visible that that full life cycle of a plant can be valued appreciated and it can be visible that you know it's not a sign of death it's not ugly it's not something to be disposed of because it's no longer flowering so yeah saving seeds is a massive part of gardening and it's a skill that a lot of people i meet are baffled by it's not a lost skill but it's not one that's often practiced so do you Does save have- your seeds a lot of them some of them i'm still learning how Mm-hmm. But, yeah, and my storage systems aren't so good. So I've got jars all over the place and envelopes, and some of them get labeled and some don't. And I love seed shopping, I admit. The, yeah. the seed catalogs, yeah. Mm-hmm. So I'll probably always have a blend of saved seeds and new seeds. But getting together with other gardeners and sharing our seeds and then growing something that someone gave me and then saving the seed and passing that on, there's there's a lovely connectedness with the person who gave it to me and then when I pass it on the next person gets a a story of where that came from that's already got two links in it there's almost like this whakapapa building up of where these plants can travel to so at the moment I've got seeds from the seed savers group that were given to me to grow some beans and then save the seeds and take them back to the next meeting in March next year and the beans were originally brought by a soldier after the First World War from Crete. Whoa. And so gardeners have grown and kept these seeds for over a hundred years. That it's it's quite a responsibility.
0: Yeah. Wow, that's
2: amazing. another aspect of what I do, which is the work experience with a student from a special needs school. So the vision statement I wrote a year ago when I started my business was empowering collective responsibility for soil health of the planet to enable good food to be grown in resilient communities with well-paid jobs for all whether neurotypical or not, in a localised food economy, increasing our spiritual connection to the land through biodynamics is a form of regenerative agriculture. So I spent six years working in disability support services, and what I saw firsthand was that there are so many adults here in New Zealand who don't have access to meaningful work and it's tragic. Through studying social role valorisation and a lot of the sort of modern theory around social services, I've come to believe just personally that the solution is not going to come from government. Mm. it's almost like you can't fix the problem with the system that created it and so as a small business what I do is work with one student from a special needs school she's 21 and she comes gardening with me she's I guess you could call her an apprentice Mm -hmm. and I'm supporting her to start her own business she's fascinated with butterflies and so we've been growing Swan plants, which she sells at my market stalls. And she also loves worms. She knows about composting and she loves tending the gardens and she loves the interactions. When we're out doing the gardens, we do the Auckland Women's Centre in Grey Lynn. And the days I go without her, it's like she's the key member of the team. <laughs> they almost don't want to see me on my own. And growing food, making soil, it doesn't require a high degree of literacy. Anyone can do it. And it's such an important role in society that we actually need many, many more people doing it. That I think there's potential jobs there for huge numbers of people. And a lot of people that are currently marginalized in society could be empowered to start growing food and start growing soil and not have it seen as the equivalent of someone collecting the rubbish but rather someone processing the beautiful coffee grounds coffee beans that are then ground up to make our delicious coffee yeah you know it's that, it's that similar sort of this is the seed of what we need for good food and let's treasure it
0: beautiful wow. it is so uplifting what nature has just available for us that can benefit so many different parts of our individual lives but also our
2: collective lives yes yeah and it's it's just there for us to see and to act and for each of us to act in the own in the little sort of individual ways that are meaningful to us
0: yeah so I think maybe there is a kind of side of the way that people perceive gardening to be this fuddy-duddy thing, something that old people do or people with land and maybe spare time or you know if you're a millennial and you don't have land it just feels like something that's not really relevant. Mhm. And so For sure. Yeah, and so what do you see the future of gardening, particularly edible gardening? What do you see that as over the next 20, 30 years? Are you hopeful that it's going to be democratised or made more relevant to more people?
2: Definitely. Already I see when I do pop-up market stores and things where I teach people how to make seed mix and we plant seeds. And I've got some of the sort of 30-year-olds or mid-20s, late-20s who, like I met one woman who didn't even want to plant the seed she was so sure it wouldn't grow she wanted to take some of mine that were already growing there's this almost anxiety around no I I can't other people don't want to get their hands dirty or don't want dirt inside the house or near their house there's there's that's a thing my hope is in the children and when I work with schools and I see kids interacting in nature there aren't many kids that don't enjoy playing outside And I've even seen young children that have come on exchanges to New Zealand from China who haven't had the experience of playing outside and getting their hands dirty that take to it. It's almost Mm -hmm. like there's an innate connectedness with nature as a child. And I think our schools and our school teachers are doing a fantastic job. It's built into the curriculum so well through healthy eating, but also through learning about growing, growing food. I, I don't know uh, do we have a lost generation in the 30s and it's as they become parents and then the children start at school that suddenly there's this concern with what are my kids going to eat what, what's the world my children are going to live in mm. and our agriculture in new zealand i think is something with social media more of it's visible and there are more and more documentaries showing how our food is grown mm. i think more people are starting to go oh i, I don't know that i I'll Want, you know i don't know how i feel about chemical agriculture or chemical fertilizers and so one solution to that conundrum is to start growing yourself mm. so 20 years from now The vision that For the Love of Bees has where everybody has the equivalent of the organic market garden within walking distance, I think that's totally doable. My vision of, of workplaces supporting their staff with edible gardens on site and having teaching spaces at work that staff, customers, families can all come and learn to grow food. That's also totally doable, especially workplaces where there's already food being prepared. So there are food scraps on site. Early childhood centers, retirement homes, tertiary institutions with cafeterias and things, you know, like golf courses, mm. places where, where there 's a lot of land spare that could have beautiful edible gardens installed and maintained.
0: Mm.
1: It's like connecting the dots, isn't it? You know, there's all these spaces that we could just expand the idea to. And, you know, and you said schools and primary schools, they have fantastic inclusion of gardening and and that sort of thing in in the curriculum, but there's all these other spaces that when the kids grow up and move out into, they're not seeing that same thing. So it's filling in those gaps so that it's around us more, isn't it?
2: Yes, yeah. And then, I mean, imagine if you went to a conference or i don 't know meditation retreat or a yoga center or somewhere and you 're going there for the purpose of learning something but as you walk around you see food being grown and then when you get your meal you're told that it's all grown on site and then Mm. sort of while you're there the composting is just a natural part of how the food scraps are managed that i think that sort of experience can have a profound effect to Mm -hmm. to see it working Mm. and and then people could go home and sort of implement some aspects of it hospitals are another place that Mm. um could be growing some of the produce that they use yeah I've heard of a hospital in New Zealand I won't say where that the catering was being done in-house again after many Mm -hmm. many years of being outsourced and so once the catering becomes localized then the person in charge of the meal planning can start to look at oh now maybe we could save money by growing some of this And I've actually taught a chef how to grow microgreens and his main interest initially was to do it to save money (laughs) so that, you know, he could get more expensive ingredients for other things. But that's really exciting that if if people who are making large amounts of food to serve others can start to connect with where that food is grown and how, then that's a a big part of shifting the paradigm. Mm.
0: Well, to just say a very big thank you to you for taking the time to speak with us. We just really appreciate it and to share your, your wealth of knowledge around gardening and composting and making soil and growing beautiful
2: food.
1: And democratising it. Yeah, <laughs>
2: that's right. Yeah, Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. That's been really fun.